On the 8th of May, 1945, a very long time ago, Sir Winston Churchill, the then Prime Minister of Great Britain, sat in his office at 10 Downing Street and he gave a live broadcast over the radio to the entire nation. And the whole point of Churchill's speech that day, the entire purpose of his broadcast was to declare victory in Europe. It was to announce to his subjects that the war was at an end. The enemy had been defeated. Victory had been secured. It was a very solemn moment and yet at the same time it was surely an occasion of huge relief, huge celebration and great joy. But friends, as significant as that was and as thankful as we surely are for that moment in history, all of that actually pales into relative insignificance when we compare it to the victory that was being announced by the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 19 and verse 35. Because here in this particular word, Jesus was announcing his victory over Satan, over sin, and over death for all who would believe in his name. Jesus was declaring that the work of redemption, which had been committed to him and entrusted to him by God the Father, had been fulfilled. The mission for which he had consecrated himself and been sent into the world, that mission had now been accomplished. Now, clearly, we know that there was still more. There was still more that had to take place. Jesus still had to uh, physically die. He had to take his last breath. He had to be buried and then significantly raised on the third day. He would then appear to the disciples for a further 40 days. He would then ascend into heaven to uh, the right hand of God, where he continues even now to intercede for all of his people and where he continues to represent us even now in righteousness. All of that is vitally important in the the whole scheme of our redemption. But the point here is that all of those things, all that was still to take place, all of that, including his second coming, was wholly dependent on, we might also say it was sealed by the fact that Jesus Christ had now completed the essential redemptive work for which he had been sent into this world. And so as we think about this statement together this evening, I want to come at it from uh, a number of different angles, and I want to do that in the hope that we might just see something afresh of uh, the enormity of what Jesus was actually saying here in this verse. We're going to begin with what is probably the 
the widest application of these words and then we're going to gradually hone in on what would be the narrowest and the most immediate meaning of what he was saying. The first thing that we ought to see is that these words point us to Christ's fulfillment of the covenant of grace, his fulfillment of the covenant of grace. Just think with me for a second all the way back uh, in the scriptures to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Genesis 3 verse 15, right after Adam had rebelled against God by failing to obey God's command in the garden along with Eve, what did God say in Genesis 3.15? He said to the serpent, to the devil, the one who had tempted Adam and Eve into that sin, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed, And then he said this concerning that seed, the seed of the woman, meaning her posterity, uh, but ultimately meaning the second Adam, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I'm sure Many of you are aware that this is what's known as the Proto-Evangelion. It is the first announcement, the first declaration of the gospel. The promise that a day would come when the power of Satan and sin and death and their grip on the people of God would be overcome and would be undone by, well, the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, but especially by his atoning sacrifice on the cross. Hence why it speaks there in Genesis 3.15 of Satan bruising his heel. The redemption would be accomplished through suffering, and particularly the sacrifice of Christ. And you see, the whole of the Old Testament, from this point onwards, it's all pointing in one direction, isn't it? It's all pointing forward to this pivotal event of Christ's passion, his death on the cross for the sins of his people. Whether we think about the the many signs and symbols of the Levitical priesthood and the the whole sacrificial system and how the priest would take the the blood of the animal into the most holy place and how he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat as a symbol of God's willingness to atone for the people's sins. Or whether we think about major prophecies in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 53 and the promise that God's suffering servant would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, or whether we think about key events in the history of the Old Testament, such as the time, remember, when Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac 
But just in the nick of time, as it were, God provided a substitute, a ram that was caught in the thicket. Or we might think of the time when David, the shepherd, went into battle against a great enemy by the name of Goliath and how he came out the other side victorious as the champion of God's people. Do you see that all of these things, they all take their lead in a sense from Genesis 3.15 and they're all pointing in this one direction, aren't they? To that moment in history when all of those types and shadows and prophecies would culminate with the death of Jesus Christ and his words, it is finished. And so first of all, we need to see these words not in an abstract sense, but as a declaration of the fulfillment of God's covenant of grace, as was revealed all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15. The second thing that these words point us to is the fact that Christ had now satisfied the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus Christ had satisfied the righteous requirements of the law. Think again about all that took place prior to this moment, this pivotal moment in Jesus' life when he was on the cross. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, of the same divine essence as the Father and the Holy Spirit from everlasting to everlasting, had condescended to this world, had taken on human flesh, had been made in the likeness of men. He then experienced, as our own confession says, he experienced all of the toils and the miseries and the pains which are common in a fallen world. He suffered temptation at the hands of the devil. He had no place to lay his head. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He had to grow in stature, in wisdom, in knowledge as a man. He suffered opposition throughout his entire ministry. He was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was spat upon, he was punched, he was scourged, and finally, in the end, executed by crucifixion. You ask yourself the question, why did Jesus endure all of this? What did he accomplish through those three or so years in particular of his ministry and through all that he suffered leading up to this point? And friends, the answer to that question is that Jesus lived as a man. He suffered all of these things, not just so that he could then sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4 Verse 15, although that is very important, but even more important, he did all of this and he suffered all of this so that he could fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. Think about it. We are all lawbreakers. 
every single one of us. I don't know you all on Zoom tonight. I, I don't know if I've even met you all. Probably not. But I can guarantee you're a lawbreaker, just like me. We have all sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us turning to our own little way. We cannot perfectly obey God's law for one day, never mind the whole of our lives. And therefore, in order for sinners like us to be redeemed from the curse of the law, someone had to come and live under that law for us. Someone had to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. How did he do that? He did that by, first of all, living every day of his life, even in the face of all of that suffering and persecution, in perfect obedience to the law. And secondly, he did that by then suffering the punishment that was due to us for our failure to keep that law through his death on the cross. And friends, when Jesus prepared to take his dying breath and when he declared this word, it is finished, he surely would have had all of this in mind. If I can just say this somewhat imaginatively and hopefully reverently, It's as if there was this council, there was this council in heaven before the foundation of the world in eternity past. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as if they looked into the future and they they could see how it was all going to play out. They could see the rebellion of a people who were not living, any of them, according to his will, according to his commandments. And so these three persons of the Godhead, they said, as it were, with one voice, something is going to have to be done about this. Someone is going to have to represent these people in righteousness. Someone is going to have to live the life that they have not lived and suffer the consequences of their failure to do so. And Christ the Son turns to the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he says, I'll go. I'll do this. And then you fast forward all the way to this moment in history on the cross, and it's as if if Jesus has in full view here his oneness with the Father and the Holy Spirit and all that they had covenanted to do as one God in eternity past. And so now he thinks of them and he thinks of his elect and he says with a loud voice, it is finished. My work is done. My mission is accomplished. It's amazing, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ who fulfills all righteousness and all of this so that we can now be declared righteous in him. And this brings us to our final point this evening. And what is, as I mentioned before, really the most precise, um, immediate application of these words. And that is that when Jesus said, it is finished, 
he was emphatically declaring that a great penalty had now been paid. In our English translations, clearly this statement comes to us in three words. It is finished. But as I'm sure some of you will be well aware, in the Greek it's actually just one word, the word tetelestai. And this is a word that was often used by the Greeks in the ancient world on a sales receipt. It's a word that simply means paid in full. It conveys the fact that there are no outstanding debts, that there are no further payments that need to be made. Now, we cannot understand that apart from the context of all that had just taken place. John's Gospel doesn't record it for us in the way that Matthew and Mark do, but remember that just for this, Jesus had just endured those three hours of dereliction and chastisement at the hands of God the Father for our sin. He just cried out not long before this, those words that I think I preached on actually when I was there in London a few years ago, those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? as he drank the full cup of God's wrath for our sins. And so do you see that when he declares with a loud voice, it is finished, what is he saying? He's saying the penalty for sin has now been paid. There are no more outstanding debts. Why? Because I have been care of them all. You think about it, all of our sin, all of our guilt was placed upon the shoulders of this one who knew no sin and in whom there is no guilt. He then suffered the wrath of God that was due to us for that sin. And by so doing, he satisfied holy justice. He appeased and turned away God's wrath from our lives so that now and in him we are cleared of our guilt and we are declared righteous in his sight. It's these words of Isaiah 53 in verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace And with his wounds, we are healed. The 17th century Puritan English preacher, pastor, uh, John Flavel, he has this wonderful moment in his, his works where he, he imagines a dialogue between Jesus the Son and his father concerning this particular moment of Christ's suffering on the cross. And he says it's as if Jesus saw in his mind's eye all of his covenant children. It's as if Jesus saw in that moment all of the elect and he turned to the Father and he said, 
Bring in all their debts, Father. Bring them all in, such that there may be no after-reckonings with them. Bring in all their debts, such that there may be no after-reckonings with them. And this is why the Apostle Paul, later on in Romans chapter 8, goes on to say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why not? Because Jesus Christ suffered that condemnation for us. What does that mean for us? In practical terms, it means there is absolutely nothing more that we can do in order to be justified before God, in order to be considered righteous by God, in order to be at one with God, other than looking to and believing on the person and the works of his dear and beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why not? Because when he declared it is finished, he meant it is finished. He meant that the great ransom price that was due to God for the sins of the elect, the sins of the past, the sins of the present, the sins of the future, all of them had been paid in full. Friends, if this doesn't thrill our hearts, if this doesn't cause us to be exceedingly thankful to God for his son, for the gospel, for his covenant of grace, for all that he has done. If this doesn't cause us to want to examine ourselves and to turn from our sins and to seek a closer walk with the Lord, then I think nothing else will. It's these words of the modern hymn, My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain, who plumbed the depths of my disgrace and gave me life again, who crushed my curse of sinfulness and clothed me in his light and wrote his law of righteousness with power upon my heart. What a saviour we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. May all the honour and all the glory be to his name. Well, let's pray together. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your amazing grace in the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for your covenant. We thank you for all that your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, has done and all that he has accomplished for sinners. We pray that you would seal these truths to our hearts evening in such a way that, Lord, we may respond with lives of worship and devotion and praise in such a way that we would bring forth much fruit in the coming days. We remember, Lord, those known to us who are as yet strangers to your grace. And we pray, dear Father, that you would be pleased to bring them to a saving knowledge of your Son, 
We pray even now, Lord, for all who are here on this online meeting. And Lord, if there are any who are apart from you, estranged from you, oh Lord, we pray that you would enable them by your grace to seek the Lord while he may be found, to call upon him while he is still near. We thank you, Father, this evening for all the saints at LCPC. We thank you for the elders. Thank you for Harrison. We thank you for Bob Ackroyd, their interim moderator. Lord, as they look to the future, we ask that you would be their guide. We pray that your spirit would be upon that fellowship. Grant them great unity and peace in their Saviour. We pray that you would add to their number those who are being saved. We pray, O Lord, that each one would remain strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Bless the remainder of our time together this evening, we pray. For we ask all of these things in the wonderful and the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.